electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, high voltage. President Biden's EV push feeling the squeeze as the UAW threatens to expand its strike. Line them up. After Instacart's public splash, another tech IPO preparing its debut. Just out on CBC.com, an explosive op-ed saying the government push to possibly break up Amazon could be a good thing. Call it fakes on a plane. The wild and scary story about how some bogus parts from a mysterious company may end up on your plane's engines. Hope for those most in need. Elon Musk's Neuralink recruiting test subjects for its brain implant chip. And call it the Coach Prime economy. Why Colorado football's Deion Sanders is now a one-man stimulus package for the region. So belly up or study up, last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I'm your professor for the evening tonight. Brian Sullivan, all that ahead and more. But first up on Last Call, America's growing debt warning to the world. Government borrowing costs soaring again, hitting highs not seen in about 16 years. This not only means that you are going to have to pay more on things like mortgages, home equity lines of credit, credit cards, car loans, etc. But the government will, too. Look at these comps to just from now to March of 2022, last year, 30-year mortgages, back then 4.3%, now 7.3%. Home equity lines, also up more than 2.5% in a year and a half. The average credit card rate in America, now more than 20%. And the used car loan is averaging out at over 11% in just a year and a half, folks. Now, that is your pain. But the government is also facing higher payouts to people and other governments who buy American debt. Governments, by the way, like China. Now, sadly, America hitting another brutal debt milestone today. Our debt now crossing a staggering $33 trillion. That is $10 trillion more than just before COVID hit. $10 trillion added to your debt in about three and a half years. Keep in mind, it took America about 200 years to even get to $10 trillion in debt. Most of that, by the way, the last 20 years. All right, so when I say trillion, we know that's a big number. But let's put that $33 trillion into perspective, right? It's kind of like talking about the universe, hard to understand. All right, the national debt clock says $33 trillion in debt is $98,448 for every man, woman, and child in America and $245,000 per American taxpayer. Now, that all begs the question, is the bond market getting worried ahead of the Fed's much-anticipated rate decision tomorrow? These are big numbers. And America bulls may argue, and maybe they have a point, that we've had huge debts and deficits for years, and it never seemed to matter. Investors and governments, they just kept buying our debt. But at some point, could that change? 
Let's talk about it. The chief investment officer of BMO Family Office, Carol Schleif, and Kobesi, letter editor-in-chief Adam Kobesi, who kind of highlighted this $33 trillion number yesterday. Adam, I'll begin with you. We're getting to the point now where I, I just wonder, and not to be glib, do the numbers even matter at this point? It doesn't seem like it. Um, since the debt ceiling crisis came to an end just three months ago, we've added $3 trillion to the to the national debt. That's, um, you know, trillion per month and interest expenses now on track to be um over one trillion per year on an annualized basis and i think the the more concerning part is on a trailing 12-month basis tax receipts are down over eight percent federal tax receipts so you had this situation where debt levels are, are skyrocketing due to spending but also due to falling tax receipts um so it's kind of like a double whammy here um and in in turn i mean you mentioned interest rates the the the, yeah. the federal government is issuing record levels of bonds to cover this deficit spending. So we're we're seeing almost two trillion issued over this quarter and the next, and that in addition to the Fed's uh, rate hike campaign is driving Treasuries higher. Um, the ten year note yield we yeah. think is heading to five percent. And and I want to be clear. You bring up a good point to our audience. A lot of a lot of political messaging out there. Let's be very clear. The deficit is going up. It is not going down. Carol, I don't mean it's not not a political point. It just it simply is math and facts and data that's publicly available to anybody. Right now, America has the benefit of the world and investors still have an appetite to buy our debt. That's a good thing. But yet it seems to be weakening a little bit. Are you worried? Well, I think it's important to keep it in context, too, that our economy overall has grown during that period in my in my entire career, as you alluded to, debt and deficits have been an issue. And I don't want to minimize them because they are an increasing issue, especially with the cost to service that debt having gone up. But we have gotten so used to and anchored to a 0% kind of um, base rate in there, which was actually more abnormal. And so, yes, it's worrisome. We need the rest of the world and we need domestic citizens to buy that debt to continue to finance it, but also look at where some of that has gone. It's gone into the support that we put pandemic-wise into our economy and to the people. Now it's going into the support we're putting into rebuilding and enhancing the infrastructure we've got. And for better or worse, some of that spending is, you could quote as necessary. Yeah. But the, the other thing is, is from an economic standpoint, when you look at our economy relative to the rest of the globe, we're still a place that a lot of people want to invest. Yeah, 100%. You look at Europe, they're, they're, you know, especially Germany, getting to be an economic disaster because of failed energy policies that are now raising the cost of everything. I'm bullish on the United States, and that was kind of why I made the point, and I said not to be glib, to Adam, I, I wonder if we can say $33 trillion, $34 trillion, $50 trillion, whatever the number may be. I do wonder if it matters, and I meant that sincerely, Carol, because if the money's going back into the economy and that is maybe hopefully powering some jobs, that could be a good thing. But at the same time, it's also fueled inflation. And the point I tried to make in the open was how much more Americans are paying for any kind of borrowed money. And you can like it or not, but you cannot deny that America is not a credit-based economy. Americans borrow money and that's how we buy stuff. Right. I, and I think I don't want to be glib at all in terms of just saying it doesn't matter because it does matter. And sooner or later, someone's going to have to knuckle under. We're going to have to 
you know, put people in government that are willing to make those tough decisions because we have to balance the budget. We can't continue to live outside our means and some of those tough decisions. And maybe it takes getting a bunch of younger generations voted in to help us toe, toe that line because honestly, the younger generations, my kids and grandkids don't like what we've done. Well, and to be perfectly blunt across both parties, Carol, uh, most of the decision makers just based on natural sort of history are probably not going to be here in 30 or 40 years to pay the debts that they're running up. Adam, you know, listen, the Federal Reserve, it's got its decision tomorrow. Maybe they'll pause. Maybe they'll raise rates once again. In two years, do you think borrowing costs will be lower than they are now, about the same or higher? Because there's probably a lot of home buyers or car buyers out there wondering, should I wait? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, to, to predict anything two years from now is obviously become incredibly difficult. But I think the Fed is preparing for a long pause. I, I don't think they're going to raise rates tomorrow. And I don't think they're going to raise rates at all anymore in this cycle. I think the Fed's going to take a long pause, maybe through mid next year. And then as we see in core inflation numbers keep coming down, maybe start seeing some weakness in the economy, you'll start to see rate cuts. So I think next year at this time, maybe into 2025, you will see lower rates. But does that mean that we're going back down to these historically low two to three percent mortgages? Probably not. We'll probably find a more of a spot. And it's also worth noting we're not even historically speaking, rates aren't even really that high. No. I mean, in the 80s, 90s, mortgage rates were at almost double the current levels. So I think there's just a lot of shock from the recent rapid yeah. uh, ramp up of interest rates and just coming off that historically low levels. And even the U.S. is experiencing the same thing. That's why interest expense is rising so rapidly. Yeah. I, uh, so I think in a couple of years, we will see maybe slightly lower rates. I don't think we're going much higher, but we're also not going back to historic lows. Uh, yeah, good point. I don't think it's the level. I think it's the speed at which we got here. But by the way, speaking of speed, here's what I, if, if God willing, I live to be 92. I'm going to buy a Lamborghini and put it on an American Express card and just be like to my kids. Good luck, guys. Carol and Adam, <laughs> thank you both very much. If I'm 92 and driving a Lamborghini, everyone's going to need some good luck. All right. In the meantime, here's what happened to your money today. The major averages fell just a touch. The Dow, the big loser today. But when I say that, it was down three tenths of one percent. The big winner of the day inside the S&P battery maker Enphase Energy, a trader favorite there. And the biggest decliner, the biggest decliner was Intel, down more than 4%. We'll get more on Intel a bit later on. All right, we got a lot more to do and up next. Tomorrow brings another new stock you can buy. Who is it and is it worth your money? Venture capitalist Bradley Tusk will join us. Plus, the UAW strike threatens to expand and it could force a total shutdown of Detroit is the EV agenda next. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some CNBC-style headlines you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, your daily dose of Elon Musk news, because his brain implant startup, which is called Neuralink, is recruiting for its first human clinical trial. In a blog post, the company said it was looking for patients with quadriplegia due to cervical spinal cord injury or those with ALS, known as Lou Gehrig's disease. The goal is to, quote, grant people the ability to control a computer or keyboard using only their thoughts. Now, experts say the company, while promising, is still years away from securing commercial clearance. Next up, make sure it's real. Eli Lilly suing clinics for selling Monjaro knockoffs. Monjaro is the wildly successful diabetes drug. It's also frequently used for weight loss. Eli Lilly sued 10 medical spas, wellness clinics, and compounding pharmacies, whatever that is. And finally, another new stock for you, Boston-based Clavio, pricing its IPO at 30 bucks a share. Clavio is an email and text message marketing company, and it will now be valued at more than $9 billion. Begin trading tomorrow on the stock exchange under KVYO. I guess all those emails you get to sign up for stuff at the gym pay off, at least for, for someone at Clavio. All right, this, of course, follows Instacart's NASDAQ debut today, and wow, some folks made money on it. We hope it was you. Instacart initially popped 40%, but, quote, only closed up 12%. Still a good day, but off its highs. And by the way, Arm, the semiconductor company, which went public last week, is giving up a lot of its IPO gains. It closed down nearly 5% today. And get this, Arm is now below its opening trade, not its, not its IPO price, but its opening trade price of $56.10 a share. Still a pretty good day, at least for employees and bankers at Clavio, And, of course, people may be looking to pay their Instacart bill. Let's bring in Bradley Tuss for more. He is an expert in early stage startups, co-founder and CEO of tech venture capital firm Tusk Ventures. And he's also got a big new op-ed just out right now on the FTC's expected antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. We'll get to that in just one moment. First off, though, Bradley, to the markets. Email and text messaging marketing today, delivery by, you know, grocery delivery company yesterday. Should we read into these two companies on any kind of a larger scale? Yeah, look, I hope so, right? Because as a VC, there's been a total dearth of liquidity over the past, at this point now, really 24 months, uh, both on the IPO side and even on the M&A side. And so between Arm and Instacart and Clavio, Clearly, that's a positive sign. And I think one other reason for optimism is when you look at the Instacart IPO, while the stock did trade up 12.6% today, and that's great, the valuation was a price at around $10 billion, which is about a third of its high at about $29 billion. And so I think what's finally happening is a rationalization um, between the private market and the public market, right? For a long time, the private market, venture capitalists like me, we're just paying way too much money in valuations. Companies were, were being uh, traded for far more than they really should be. And then when they hit the public market, you saw these 60, 70 percent almost immediate haircuts. And that was rightfully so. And I think finally, the two things are getting aligned. And that's what can lead to a lot more IPOs. All right. I want to switch gears. You got a new, new, uh, new op-ed. It's out on CNBC.com as of literally 17 minutes ago. 
Now, the FTC is expected to file a lawsuit against Amazon, supposed to be filed in coming weeks. We don't know, but that's that's the expectation. And you just actually kind of wrote an op-ed that I would argue, is it fair to say, either supports the the expected lawsuit, Bradley, or at least doesn't knock the expected lawsuit? It at least doesn't knock it. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't call it supporting it. I would say it doesn't knock it. Right, because the, the court will decide what the court decides, and I, I have no ability to really know who's right or wrong in the fight itself. But as an early-stage investor, whenever I look at a company, I have to ask myself, is this something that an entrenched interest would either build or would they buy? And then I have to ask myself, if you're going up against someone really powerful, an Amazon, a Google, a Meta, a Microsoft, an Apple, can you possibly survive? And when the entrenched interest you're going up against completely controls the marketplace, they completely control pricing like Amazon does, we almost never end up investing. And the problem is at some point, gravity will set in. It might not be for 10 years or 20 years, but at some point, Amazon will go the way of every single company in history, which means they will become less innovative. They will become more bureaucratic. They will become slower. And then when they start to stagnate, the question is, did those other companies get seeded? And so they can step up and take their place. And when early stage VCs yeah. like me can't invest, you're really putting the economy at risk in 10, 20 years. I, I did not know that you owned an independent bookshop in Manhattan. Which, which one, by the way? It, thank you. It's called PT Knitwear. It's on the Lower East Side. It's a bookshop and a podcast studio that's free for anyone to use. I think we're the only one in New York that does that. And look, even as someone whose business gets killed by Amazon, I knew I wasn't going to make any money when I opened the thing. Um, I still probably buy 75 books a year on Kindle. So I think Amazon's a great company, but I think yes. eventually that that's, that always what goes up comes down. Okay, but I'm going to read a line from this op-ed, and you say, you actually just quoted yourself, you said, I think Amazon is a great company, but I also think that allowing them to continue to dominate the entire retail market unimpeded is a death knell for the economy in 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Those are big words. Well, you know, uh, want to make the op-ed interesting for people to read. But look, ultimately, like, let's take Microsoft and Google. Uh, the FTC cracked down on Microsoft in the 1990s, took them to court. And ultimately, the settlement meant that Microsoft couldn't use its then market power to force Apple and other manufacturers to pre-install Internet Explorer. And that's what gave Google the chance to get off the ground. And Google since has been this incredible engine for the U.S. economy continues to be so, but it's only because the FTC took action against Microsoft 25 years ago. So I think we have to sort of look backwards 25 years and forward 25 years if we want to make sure that innovation will continue. Bradley Tusk, really interesting op-ed. Again, out on CNBC.com right now. Go check it out. Uh, Bradley, we appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck to the bookstore, by the way. I'll check it out. Thank you. Come by. We'll get your coffee. Yeah, there you go. Fantastic. Look forward to it. All right, still ahead. More on the UAW's continued strike, why it could get worse this weekend, and why some are saying that D.C.'s almost obsession with EVs could just be a gift to China in disguise. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back to Last Call. We have reached day five of the UAW strike, and now the union is threatening to expand the strike to other factories if no progress is made by Friday. Now, in other developments, the White House will no longer be sending officials in person to Detroit to try to sit down with the UAW this week. Both parties have decided to speak on Zoom for now. The UAW is not asking the president or his people to actually come to Detroit and so far has withheld its big endorsement for Biden's second term. And as the strike gets more attention politically, now former vice president and GOP hopeful Mike Pence is calling out the administration arguing its policies are exacerbating the situation. Here he is on CNBC earlier today. One of the things that's driving that strike is that, that, that Bidenomics and, and their green energy electric vehicle agenda is, uh, is good for Beijing and bad for Detroit. Uh, and, and American auto workers know it. Is it bad for Detroit? Is there any truth to what he's saying? Well, you decide for yourself. Detroit's automakers are spending about $80 billion to build out electric cars and some of the necessary parts and infrastructure. And the federal government, meaning your tax money, is helping to pay for it. In August, the Energy Department announced a $15.5 billion funding package to help support existing auto manufacturing plants to retool the facilities for more EV and battery production. President Biden has made it clear his goal is to have a 50% half of all new vehicle sales be electric by 2030. That's in six years. So is that really just a tailpipe dream? According to Kelly Blue Book, only about 6% of all new cars sold in America last year were electric. By the way, nearly all of them, Teslas. Is this EV push out of line with what Americans really want? And could that disconnect be stoking the flames of the UAW strike? Now, I pulled my followers on Twitter and an overwhelming majority of you, 88%, believe that the rise of EVs will lead to fewer union jobs in five years, 88% to 12. But that's just you, and that's just us. Let's take it to our panel with us tonight. is former acting U.S. Labor Secretary Seth Harris, an Actum Consulting co-chair and former acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. Seth, first to you, uh, survey after survey shows that a large percentage of Americans just don't have any interest. GM and Ford are losing billions of dollars on all these cars. Why this, why this almost obsessive push? Well, because it's necessary in order to save the planet. And we're very early in the life what? of electric vehicles. How is it, making a car going to save the planet? Well, by moving from internal combustion engine cars that emit gases that are greenhouse gases okay, and what moving about, to electric. But Okay, hybrids are 14 times better for the environment than battery electric vehicles. Toyota knows that. That's why they're doing it as far as emissions come out, Seth. But to, again, tie this together. I, building, building anything, is, is building anything good for the planet? Well, we're going to have to build some things, Brian. We're going to have to build electric vehicles, for example. And we're early in the life of that 
product in the United States market. We're seeing growth, and I think we're going to see even more growth, particularly when the big three make a major push, as they're doing right now, into electric vehicles. So I think we are going to see the American people buying them. And also, we're in a policy environment that strongly encourages them to buy them with rich tax credits that will encourage them not only to buy electric vehicles, but to buy American-made electric vehicles. And that's going to help the industry get a tremendous boost in the domestic market. Seth, um, I, I fundamentally disagree with everything you just said. I'm not, I'm not, I, I talked to 50 to 60 car dealers. Not, we had one on last night. No, aside from Teslas, they're not selling. The ones that sell, are, they're losing tens of thousands of dollars on every single car. Americans have shown that, that 7%, if, if, if Americans wanted EVs, sales would be 100%, Seth, because you can get an EV anywhere you want at any time right now. They're spectacularly well, expensive and they don't do things very well. I'm not, and by the way, I've driven many EVs and I've said, I'll say this for the first time on the air, I've owned an EV, okay? And I, I just worry about Detroit. I don't care about EVs or gas powered cars because I talk about energy. I'm worried about Detroit and its jobs, Seth. I really, really worry about it. Well, the, it's not just that you're disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with the big three automakers because they, as you said, are investing tens of billions of dollars in this transition to electric vehicles. There is new efforts to mine the necessary minerals to make the batteries. They're entering into joint ventures in order to create electric vehicle battery manufacturing facilities in the United States that are going to create a lot of jobs. The question, as you said, and I think you're right about this, is whether or not those are going to be good union jobs. And that will come down to whether or not the UAW is able to organize those workers along with some other unions and to help to drive yeah. collective bargaining agreements that get them good quality wages, good quality benefits and a voice in the workplace. And that's, and that's fair. And I and I and I and that is I want to be clear on my point here. Mick, which is that I have a lot of friends in Detroit. I spend a lot of time in Michigan and I worry about the blue collar workers that built the middle class. And I know the UAW is far smaller, Mick, than it used to be. And if everybody listen, if they can build a bunch of electric cars and trucks and, and fill a bunch of jobs and make a bunch of money, that's great. That's that's what that's what I think Seth is getting to. But it, the data doesn't look good. And you just wonder how long can you keep losing all this money on this product, which a lot of people say they don't want, at least for now, while Toyota is sitting over there going in a totally different direction. China's going to be coming in here with like $10,000 battery electric vehicles. And Elon Musk is counting his billions because almost every EV that is sold is a Tesla. And that is a non-union shop. And he's got a huge cost advantage because of that. Look, I, I think your gut, I think, is right, Brian, is that the workers know what the deal is. That they, They're striking now for a reason. By the way, I happen to respect their right to do this. I happen to think that people should have the right to associate like this, and this is the right way to deal with this. I'd ra much rather have the union do the negotiate, uh, negotiating than have the government come and put their, their thumb on the scales, which is what's happened to previous Democrat administrations. But I think they see the writing on the wall just like everybody else does, just like sort of the screenwriters do in California with AI. People are not stupid. They know what happens in their own lives. They know what happens at their own workplace. And my guess is these folks are looking their hands over and say, look, it looks great on paper what the Biden administration has done. But really what this means is that five, six years from now, I'll be out of yeah. a job. And even, even even worse, my kids won't be able to work in this line of work either. So that I think that's that's what's driving a lot of you this. You know, I'll, I'll give you a real world example, Mick. And again, I'm going to use one example. And this is maybe a terrible example. And people want to at me. That's fine. 
Okay, and I, dr- I drive across. I drive across the Midwest three or four times a year, mostly in the summer. I'm cruising through 80. I race cars in northeastern Ohio, and there's a big Lordstown plant. Now, everybody knows that, right? It used to be Chevy. They used to make the Chevy Cruze. Then that went away. Then they sold the plant to Lordstown Motors, which was going to make electric trucks, which, by the way, were, were ugly. But the company was, it seems like, maybe poorly managed. company went away. You know what that plant is now, Mick? It's a Foxconn factory. Foxconn, the Chinese manufacturing. Lordstown was the pride of northeastern Ohio, right? A Chevy factory that probably put a lot of food and mortgages on the table. Then it became Lordstown. That didn't work. And now it's Foxconn. And I just, I just be damned if, if I want to see the rest of Detroit go like that. If American, the American public wants to buy whatever they want to buy, fine. But when I see a truck that's $90,000 and goes 270 miles, 130 of which, if you're pulling a trailer or if it's cold, I worry. Oh, no, I've got a, I've got a Ram 2500 in my backyard my wife hauls horses with. We talked about this just the other day when we saw Rivian coming down the road. And she's like, yeah, it's kind of it's cute, but it can't, haul, it can't haul what I need it to haul. So, look, electric vehicles are great. You've admitted yeah. you've got one. I'll confess I've got one as well. I own a Ford Fiat 500E because I only drive it a couple days a year uh, on another piece of property that I own. So there's purposes for these things. There's good reasons to have them. But to try and force Americans – by the way, you mentioned the – 50% by 2030, it's two-thirds by 2032. It's about 10 times what we make right now in just the next couple of years. So yeah. this is typical. A lot of times, uh, very well-meaning administrations will simply go out and say, look, uh, we're going to make a, we're going to set a rule that we know the technology can't hit and hope the technology hits that, that, that rule by the time the rule kicks in. It's a huge gamble. And I think you see the UAW workers pushing back against gambling with their and, jobs. And, and Seth, what, listen, obviously climate change is an existential risk. And we know that we know that we've got to do something to counter that. I just, I don't know if, if battery electric is necessarily the answer given the minerals involved, that's probably a separate debate for a different show. But what if this doesn't work for Detroit? Would this administration be willing to bail them out again? Well, this administration hasn't bailed them out at all. There was a bailout in 2009 when we were in an internal combustion engine environment. Well, there was a vice they president. Were, they were failing. Named Biden. Yeah, but, but I want to I respond to Mick's point about this strike being about electric vehicles, which is not correct. Um, what this strike is about is the UAW trying to claw back decades of concessions that they have made to the auto industry in order to save those companies so that they would be able to be profitable. Now they are profitable. They've been profitable for a decade. They made $21 billion in the first half of this year collectively. And now what the UAW members are fighting for is higher wages, cost of living adjustments, pensions and retiree health care, the elimination of a two-tiered system. They are fighting on traditional collective bargaining issues that are not connected to electric vehicles. Now, the electric vehicle transition absolutely looms large over these uh, over mm-hmm. these negotiations. And there are a couple of issues at the table, mostly having to do with job security that are related to the electric vehicle fight. But this is not a negotiation about how and when the UAW is going to organize electric vehicle battery manufacturing plants. This is a negotiation about trying to undo concessions that those workers are really angry that their union made. Mick, I'm going to get you to respond. And guys, we've got to go long. We'll kill something later. I apologize. Seth, you're the former labor secretary, so you know this better than anybody. All technology, people say it's going to kill the industries. Technology tends to grow jobs, right? Like blacksmith, the car put the, the blacksmith out of business, but far more jobs are created by cars. Is there a realistic pathway where this transition will indeed 
end up with more of these types of jobs, even though fewer workers are needed to build specific cars? Is the infrastructure big enough that it will support more jobs? Well, I think that's a, that's a, I think that's a very interesting and important question. And I agree with you about the importance of technological change right now. What you and Mick in your back and forth dialogue just talked about was the technology as it stands today. But technology doesn't stand still. And these big three automakers and all of the automakers are going to find ways to make their cars much cheaper than a Tesla is now, much cheaper than the Rivians that you were just describing. As we get to scale, as we get to more investment, we are going to see electric electric vehicles become much more cost effective for the American people. And with a, with some help from the government to subsidize the American industry and get them started, I think that they're going to be able to succeed. Seth, I got to say, I, I disagree with what you said earlier, but I agree 100 percent with what you said just now. Because, but but it has to work and it is a big gamble. And I hope like heck, Seth, that you are 100, you're a smart guy, 100 percent correct, because if, if you're right, we're good. If if that doesn't happen it could be a, a, a long, long couple of years in Detroit. Seth Harris, Mick Mulvaney, good discussion, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. A lot of passion on all sides. All right, still ahead. And not only wild story, you got to hear some airlines are discovering bogus parts in their jet engines. Bogus parts in their jet engines. How is that possible? Oscar Munoz joins us next. All right, welcome back. There's a pretty wild story in the skies grabbing our attention. We talked about it a little bit last night, but then we thought about it. And we realized we got we to gotta do more. Okay, you probably heard about that great Samuel L. Jackson movie, Snakes on a Plane. But how about fakes on a plane? United Airlines become the third airline to find fake parts in some of its engines. United says just two, just two of its 737 aircraft engines had the fake parts, which were thankfully discovered during routine maintenance. The parts in question can be traced back to a supplier called AOG Technics. Now, if you've never heard of this company, don't worry. Neither had we until yesterday. AOG Technics is a London-based company with a very little or online presence. In fact, it was founded by one guy in a house. United, the third airline now to come forward about the faulty parts following Southwest and Virgin Australia. Currently unclear how many planes may be affected by this. But a company makes engines for this, has previously noted that fake parts had been discovered at some of its plants. Joining us now is Oscar Munoz, CBC contributor, former CEO of United. Oscar, this company literally was founded by some dude in a house, like literally a house outside of London. Almost no Internet presence of Bloomberg reports, fake employees. How in the world would actual parts of a company like that end up at an aircraft engine? Uh, Brian, nice to, nice to hear from you. Uh, you know, it's a great question, and I think all the right investigations and proper sort of inquiries are going to be made. You're right on the surface. This seems to be uh, the potential of malfeasance, and that's one of the things, you know, you cannot protect against in any way, shape, or form. But I would say the industry, airlines as a whole, and, of course, United, has an extraordinarily high standard for safety. And when things like this crop up, uh, you know, anywhere across the country, we share information and everyone has plans to act quickly. So, you know, the the, the, the parts in question, uh, while you could be called fake or bogus, 
Um, we just we don't know where they came from, whether yeah. they've been tested. So that clearly is an issue. But how it happened and how it can be stopped will be something that, again, a lot of the investigation and inquiry that, we, that will follow this, that hopefully will um, shine some light on it. I'm comforted by the fact that they were found, Oscar. That actually made me feel good that we're doing the story because United Maintenance Workers were able to spot it. So good job by them. I guess for me, the whole story that just freaky, like this is not like some guy selling like some bogus little Internet thing out of an apartment. This is somebody who somehow is getting parts into aircraft engines that Bloomberg reported yesterday had like fake employees listed and some sketchy address. I mean, who's vetting these vendors? Well, it, it, that's, a, that's a tricky, that's a good question. It's a tricky one. And it's one that there's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of process for doing this. But invariably, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And all of these companies have suppliers who then have suppliers who then have suppliers beyond that. And it's a bit of the, the cybersecurity issue and risk that we face. There's just so many moving parts. And again, the inquiry investigation of this will, will source some things, and, and I'm sure it will get fixed. But your question is a good one, and it is concerning. But the important part is that these were found quickly. And, you know, the utter transparency of how people responded in the industry should make everyone uh, feel good because yeah. these were reported very quickly. All right, that's good because, uh, Oscar, I'm flying again this weekend. So <laughs> I think right safely. And the airports are still packed, so a lot of us have the same concern. But uh, just a weird story. I hope someone digs in a little more on that one. Oscar Munoz, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, coming up, what's in a name? Well, it turns out a lot. Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, turning to Colorado's golden goose. Some of the unbelievable numbers around the Deion Sanders economy out there in Boulder. Next. All right, if you haven't been paying attention, Boulder, Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, not Tuscaloosa, not Athens, Boulder, Colorado has become the center of the college football universe. The hype behind Deion Sanders' Buffaloes pushed ticket prices and TV ratings into the stratosphere. Take a look at a cost to attend Colorado's next game against the Oregon Ducks. The cheapest seat on SeatGeek is 195 bucks. That's not horrible, but guess what? It'll cost you more than $500 if you want to see the Buffalo's upcoming home game against the USC Trojans. For context, that is more than three times the price for the median Denver Broncos ticket. Well, the Buffaloes could probably beat the Broncos. Anyway, the ticket bonanza comes on the heels of Colorado's double overtime win versus Colorado State. And that game drew 9.3 million TV viewers, ESPN's largest college football audience of the season, and the network's fifth most watched regular season game Ever. Colorado versus Colorado State. Wow. Meantime, Buffalo shirts and hoodies flying off the shelf. Colorado merch sales skyrocketed up 800% from last season. The phenomenon is so big, Boulder, Colorado's Chamber of Commerce says there could be a $17 million impact on the local economy every time there's a sold-out home game this season. So, is Coach Prime really a one-man stimulus package? Look at that background. Let's talk about it with the mayor of Boulder, Aaron Brockett. And Mayor Brockett, thanks for joining us. And you got the Buffs hat on. I love it. Listen, people were optimistic when he came in. I don't know if anybody expected this. No, nobody really did. And Brian, thanks so much for having me here tonight. But we all got very excited when Deion Sanders was hired as the head coach. 
but we had no idea at what would come next and that it would hit this level of attention and success and, uh, and impact. It's very exciting. Everybody's thrilled here in Boulder. Yeah, and it's new, obviously, and they've started off hot 3-0. and um, Close game against Colorado State Rams, by the way. It was a 23-point spread. I know. Thank you, Colorado State. Um, but that said, are you worried that this is going to taper off or hotel owner, you know, r- restaurant owners talking to you saying, Mayor, we think this is going to continue? You know, they're, they're saying, give us more, give us more. There, there's lots of uh, appreciation in the restaurant and retail and hotel categories. And nobody's worried about tapering off. You know, we're, we're clearly in for a great ride this season. Lots more exciting games. You know, it's unlikely we're going to win all of them. But with this kind of attention and, and excitement, uh, everybody in the local business community is thrilled. What, what's the impact on the local infrastructure? I went to Virginia Tech. It's in a small town, Blacksburg, Virginia. And so it becomes like the fourth biggest city in America during Hokie home games and hotel rates go off the charts. Boulder is a is a big city, not big, but it's a mid-sized city. Do you have the infrastructure to handle all this outside of just the regular student population? I mean, we do. Actually, we've got this down to a science. The the city and the police department and the CU folks and their police department, we coordinate this very closely. So we've got all kinds of traffic control people guiding people in and out of town. So, you know, there's a bit of a traffic jam, but it all works out. And then we're a very walkable place, right? So once people get to Boulder, they can head to our downtown, you know, have a drink, have a, have a meal. Um, it's all very doable. The infrastructure is in good shape. Okay. We're talking about the numbers you heard in the intro. This is the one that blows my mind, Mayor. I don't know if you've heard it. You know those sa- those sunglasses Deion Sanders wears? Uh, I don't know what brand they are. The Denver Post says they did $1.2 million in sales the first day. Yeah. Were you one of those buyers? Uh, well, you know, I haven't bought my own car. I have a kind of knockoff that I was wearing during the game. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, Im- but we, we love them. The sunglasses are very cool. It's part of the Deion Sanders image. Uh, by the way, I'm wearing the CU hat. Uh, Dion does tell us to keep your hat on while talking. Um, but the, so there's the, the image is part part of what makes everything so exciting. And that they I understand they have doubled uh, their sales from all of last year. The sunglasses company because of this. Truly amazing. Listen, it's a great run. They're 3-0. and Kind of hope it continues just to make it. I remember when the Buffaloes won. The, I'm old enough to remember when they won the national championship. I think Eric oh, wow. Bieniemy, if I'm right, was the running back at the time. And I think they were undefeated or 11-1. and This is an exciting run. Happy for Boulder. Got some great people out there. Uh, Mayor Brockett, thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, pleasure being here. Thanks so much, Brian. All right, very welcome. All right, time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker. All the news that matters in the world of business and a couple of stories that we just thought were cool. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. FTX suing Sam Bankman-Fried's parents. Company alleging the Stanford law professors fraudulently transferred and misappropriated funds. Their lawyers deny that claim. The Northern Lights making an incredible display over the Midwest. People as far south as Missouri got a glimpse. They're caused by charged particles from a solar storm. It's not just crude oil prices rising. Olive oil prices also hitting new highs. Global prices surging to nearly $9,000 a ton, according to the USDA. Dry weather in the Mediterranean to blame. Bob Ross's Happy Little Trees on sale. The painting is called A Walk in the Woods, just listed for, get this, $9.85 million at a Minnesota-based gallery. Katy Perry with some fireworks of her own financially. She sold $225 million worth of her music rights to some company called Litmus Music. Doritos breaking records, because why not? 
Company just pulled off the longest cheese pull ever. Oh, over already. Did anybody get to eat? That giant chip, was it real? Acquiring minds want to know. All right, coming up. The cost of college is going to make your eyes water, but there is still some bang for the buck at the old university. We're going to give you the list of the universities with the best value for dollar, and it's going to surprise you. All right, welcome back. The Wall Street Journal revealing which colleges may offer you or your kids the best bang for the buck. And check this out. At the top of the list is Baruch College. Public school located in New York City. It costs under $10,000 a year for in-state tuition, just over fifteen dollars for out-of-state. Of course, without this is the price you pay, no financial aid. So there's your list. You've got MIT number two, Cal State LA, the University of Florida four, and Stanford, five. Hmm, interesting mix there. Let's talk about what makes these schools this way. Joining us now is Third Way, Deputy Director of Education, Michelle Domino. Michelle, uh, really interesting list here. I, you know, MIT, I totally get it. Stanford, I get Cal State, LA is not UCLA, and Baruch. What do you make of the list? Well, it's really interesting because when you have a list like this, it kind of turns things on its head and it's putting the focus exactly on what students want out of their college experience, which is a return on investment on that giant tuition check that they are paying. So the schools that top this list do a really great job at two things. One is keeping costs low for the students they enroll. And the second is helping them get good jobs and earn more after they graduate. Yeah, and, and, you know, listen, the, the price of schools is, is out of control, but yet, but let's be clear, I, I guarantee you there are certain schools, Princeton's on the list, right? Now, Princeton, if you don't have any money, you don't, they don't loan it to you, they just give it to you. Uh, Stanford, let's say you pay list price, my guess is you're going to make that money back fairly quickly, unless you go into, like, interpretive dance or something. <laughs> Exactly. Overall, across the board, we see that college is continuing to pay off for students. And the schools on this list in particular are doing a really great job at helping students get the skills that they need to succeed in the workplace and connect to industries so that they can have a good first job. They're really strong. You know, I, I compared it. The, this, this list comes out every year, Michelle, and I look back to 2016 and CBC did an article. And number one was Caltech, California Institute of Technology, Princeton, number two. Cooper Union, which I think is a free school in New York City, third and Harvey Mudd. So the list has changed. Those are all elite, sort of super hard to get into schools. It's nice to see a University of Florida, a Baruch, a Florida Atlantic was ranked in the top 40. It's, I think that's a positive trend. It's absolutely a positive trend, and it really reflects what we're seeing around the rising costs of college, the high levels of debt. Students and families have wised up. They know they want to go to a college that's going to have financial value and economic payoff for them. And the rankings are starting to reflect that more. And what's equally exciting here is the success of public institutions on these metrics, because that's where the vast majority of college students in America are going to school to get their degrees. Yeah, I think it was, you know, about half the schools in the top 25 were public schools, many of them in California. I noticed Cal State, Los Angeles, Michelle Domino of Third Way. Good stuff there. Really appreciate it. People love lists, Michelle. We, we thank you. All right, folks, what do you think of that list? Let us know. We're on Last Call, CNBC on the X. That's it for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great one. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.